You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Hey, well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, if we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to uh, let you know it's, uh, it's our joy to have you join us as we worship the Lord this morning. And if you are new, uh, this is a good Sunday to show up because we are uh, starting a new series, which will really last weeks uh, into the spring. And that is we're going to study the book of Judges. And uh, I've never heard a sermon series. I, it's been done, obviously, but I haven't listened to a sermon series uh, through the book of Judges because uh, it's, it's an interesting book. It's a challenging book. It's a dark book. Uh, it's a chaotic book. Uh, but it's in the scripture for a reason. And so what we've said is kind of the tagline that we're going to be looking at this whole series is finding hope in the chaos. Now, we came up with that little tagline weeks ago before the events of this past week. But doesn't it feel like we live in a world that is more and more chaotic? And when things get chaotic, where do we look? Uh, and this book is going to show us uh, in, in ways, unexpected ways, I think, to where to look in the midst of chaos, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So these first two sermons, today and next week, will be introductory. Today I'm going to kind of take a big picture look, uh, though we will jump into chapter one. Next week we'll look at chapter two, which is also introductory. It kind of reveals to us how the book of Judges works. If you want to look ahead, you'll see how the author uh, lays out the book by chapter two. And then in chapter three, we'll get to the first judge, the first of 12 judges we'll be looking at in the book. So I really want to give an overview by asking three questions. What is the book of Judges? We'll start there. Uh, and then uh, when is the book of Judges? Because its context in time is super important. And then uh, lastly, why the book of Judges? That is, what's the purpose of the book of Judges? What's the big picture uh, theme that it reveals to us uh, that we can learn from? So let's start with this. What is the book of Judges? Well, maybe we start with what is a judge? Because when we hear the word judge, what do you think of? You probably think of someone in a black robe uh, in a courtroom with a gavel saying order in the court or something like this. But when the word is used in this book, it's referring to someone very different. A, a couple of them do, that, do some kind of judging like that, but that's not really what they are. What they are is they are leaders that are raised up in the midst of crisis uh, they're raised up to deliver God's people from the Canaanites and in battling the Canaanites. So they're people that are raised up to lead usually a military expedition of some sort. So they have kind of civil responsibilities. They kind of have uh, military responsibilities uh, as well. And uh, what we find in this book is that the judges are well, they're flawed, and for some of them, that would be an understatement. Uh, generally, the book is about pretty bad people uh, rescuing pretty bad people who are behaving very badly. That, that's kind of what the book is about, and, and, and it's so bad that by the end of the book, it ends with just a downer. I mean, it ends with really, wow, it ends down in the dumps uh, of of almost, you could say, despair. This is the last verse of the book of Judges. When the whole story's over, this is it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I suggest to you that is the very definition of chaos. 
everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's why it's felt a little bit chaotic in our society uh, recently where people are just kind of doing what they want, it feels like at points. So that is chaos. So this is it. The story I described to you is uh, pretty bad people rescuing pretty bad people, behaving very badly. And how does it end? Well, everybody's doing what they want. It's chaos, the end. Now, we don't really know how to deal with a book like that, with a story that doesn't resolve. We, we don't really know how to deal with that. Uh, we're not used to this kind of literature. This would be tragedy or tragic literature. And so that's something we're not super familiar with. And it's something we're sure not super familiar with in the Bible. Now, thankfully, this is a story within a story, and the story does resolve uh, ultimately uh, in the Bible. The story is of glorious rescue and salvation in a new heavens and new earth. So the big story resolves. But this little story, well, it doesn't resolve. We just read the last book. And so what do we do? We don't really know how to handle it, so what do we do? Here's how it's typically, well, not typically, but often interpreted and applied and, and, uh, and we miss it. Since we don't know how to treat these various judges, what, what we do is we kind of make them heroes. And so we take a guy like Samson, who in the book you'll see ends up being the worst. He's the last judge and uh, ends up kind of being the worst. And we take a guy like Samson, who's a womanizer, and he's pursuing a Canaanite woman, which is clearly forbidden. He gets angry and kills people. He, uh, he uh, ultimately breaks every one of his Nazarite vows in the short period of a chapter or two. He was set apart as a Nazarite. We'll see what that is. But he, he breaks them all before the Lord, and we make a hero out of him as the guy with long hair who was super strong, and we make action heroes out of him. You can actually go online or you can buy a Samson uh, figurine, an action hero. And, and I think when our boys were little, we actually had those, so I'm not... I'm not you know, I'm not saying that if you've got that, feel condemned. But I am saying this, you don't want your little boy to grow up and be a Samson, I assure you. Uh, God uses him. God works miraculously through his flaws. God just, but he's not presented as a hero. As a matter of, so he is used by God, but he's not presented as a hero. As a matter of fact, that ruins the whole book. If you look at the judges and go, wow, these are really bad guys, but they're a hero. Uh, it, the whole book is geared to, to cause us to look elsewhere for a hero to look outside the pages for a hero. That, that's because of valor that we imitate. They are uh, tragic figures. And so people in the ancient uh, world would, live, would read tragedies where long stories about flawed people who ruin their lives, the end. So that, that kind of literature has a certain purpose. And in Judges, it has a theological purpose because in its gritty accounts of idolatry, violence, rape, and murder, that's the Israelites. I'm not talking about the Canaanites. I'm talking about what the Israelites do. Sexual abuse, the things that the Israelites do in this book, God is teaching us about our need for him. We see in the concluding summary line, there is not a king and everyone did what's right in their own eyes. It's meant to leave us asking this, what if there was a king? I mean, there's chaos, but what if there was a king? What if there was a good king? 
What if there was a king that could come and bring order to all of this? And we're left with this longing for a king. We're lo- we, we see the flawed judges. We see God using them. But it leads us to say, there must be one greater who will come. And that is the story of the Bible. Judges leaves us anticipating God's ultimate savior, who will come and who will bring an end to the chaos, who will usher in the place of chaos, will usher in shalom, which is peace, life the way it is supposed to be lived, where people flourish under the king in a new heavens and new earth. Jesus will come and uh, he's come, but he will return and ultimately restore shalom from the chaos and bring ultimate peace in a new heavens and new earth. And so Judges causes us to look down the line to what is coming, uh, rather than uh, be hopeless that everyone did what was right, it was chaotic in their own eyes, and the end. So that's what the book of Judges is. It's a tragedy of these little mini redemptions where God's people get in trouble, a judge frees them. Um, some of the judges are good. They, they all do a, some good things, but they all do some bad things as well. And it leaves us at the end saying, Lord, bring the great Savior, the great King, who will make all things new. Number two, when is the book of Judges? Well, we get a marker in verse one. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. So uh, the, the, the book, if you have a Bible open like a paper Bible, I'm on Judges 1, you'll see the book right before it is Joshua. So it's right, so this guy Joshua does something, then he dies, and now we're in the period of the Judges. So Every book in the Bible and its context is important, but this one especially important because we already saw the end of this story is not good. So how does it fit in the big story? And when we see how it fits in the big story, then we will better understand this story in particular. So here's the big story. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth by his word, and he created everything perfect. Um, and he created Adam and Eve who had a perfect relationship with God, had a perfect relationship with one another, had a perfect relationship with the creation as they were called to take dominion and rule over God's creation to, as stewards, manage God's good creation by taking care, tending the garden they were placed in. So everything is perfect. But what happens is this first couple, they don't want to just serve God They want to be like God, and so they disobey him. They rebel against him, and what happens when they rebel? Chaos comes. Death comes to planet Earth, and the entire creation is affected by their revolt. Everything and everyone that has come since Adam and Eve has suffered. Everyone has been a sinner since then. So what God does is right after they rebel against him, he puts in motion a plan to restore and make all things new. He puts in a plan by giving a promise that he will send someone that will rescue humanity from the evil one who tempted Adam and Eve. And uh, that is where the story starts. So the next big sort of event that happens in the story is about nine chapters later in Genesis 12, God goes to a man named Abram, who was not a believer in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He goes to this man named Abram, and he makes him a promise, and it's astounding. Here's what he says. From you and your infertile wife is going to come a great people. There's going to be tremendous descendants after you. You're going to have this huge family tree, and I'm going to make that people a nation, and I'm going to give that people a land, 
And from that land, I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to bless anyone who blesses them. And from them, blessings will come to the whole planet. So I'm going to start with you, Abram. I'm going to build a people, and from this people, I'm going to bring hope and healing and restoration and salvation to the whole world, to all who would believe. So that's what he's going to do. So it's a huge, huge plan. Um, And so what happens is this people, they're called Israel, the nation of Israel, they start growing and growing and growing, and then something terrible happens. They get enslaved by Egypt. They're taken under the power of Pharaoh. Egypt's the strongest power in the world at that point. Uh, Pharaoh rules over them, and they have a uh, terrible life of slavery for 400 years in Egypt. So then what happens is God miraculously frees them. He holds his promise to Abram. Abraham, he becomes. He, he, he frees them miraculously, takes them through the sea, frees them, the Red Sea, frees them from Egypt, and uh, takes them so that they can have their own land, as he promised, where they can worship him and represent him. But before he takes them into the land, he, he meets with them. He meets with their leader, whose name is Moses, at Mount Sinai. He meets with them, and he gives them a law. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. That's part of the law. He gives them a law and he says this. This is my law. I want you to live like this because this is what it means to live a holy life like me and you will reflect me to all the world if you live this way. So he gives them these good laws to live by so that they please God and so that they sort of represent God to the world. And while they're there, before they go into the land, while they're there at the mountain, he gives them a new identity. Uh, And this is what he says in Exodus 19. He says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just a couple of priests, not just a hundred priests. You're all going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, holy means you're going to live according to my law and so that you will please me and look like the way I I look. You, You will reflect my character and you're to be a priest. A priest is one who would sort of mediate Uh, the presence of God, the word of God. And so you're going to be people that are going to mediate to the nations what it's like to know God. You're going to represent me as a priest mediating my word and my law to the nations. You're going to be different from the nations. You're going to be different from the other nations so that people would know the God uh, that you serve, so that, uh, so that you will represent me before all. And this is the calling that God gave to Israel. It's a calling he gives us as well, that we are to represent him to the world. Well, they wander for a generation. They don't get right in the land. It takes, you know, a, a whole generation. And then he raises up a guy named Joshua. And Joshua, okay, so now we're getting close. Joshua's the book right before. He raises up this guy named Joshua, and Joshua leads them into Canaan. He told them he was going to give them a land. And he gives them this land, and they are to remove the people that are in the land. It's a judgment on these people. The Canaanites are vile. As part of their worship, they, they sacrifice their children. And so he's saying, boy, this, this, there's judgment coming to them. I want you to come in, and I want you to kill off the Canaanites. I want you to take the land. That's the land I'm going to give you as a judgment. So Joshua leads them. They, uh, and man, this is starting to crescendo. Joshua leads them in. They, they start the conquest. They're living uh, in Canaan. And this is what he says. If you have a paper Bible, just go over one page to the left, and it's Joshua 24. This is the end of Joshua's life. He 
gives this sort of brave heart speech to everybody and he says to them, I gave you a land on which you, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, well, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So he said, God brought us out here. Now we're in the land and you got to choose who you're going to serve. You know what they do? Three times all the people say, we will serve God. We will serve God. And then you turn the page and you're over to Judges and you're like, wow, what a great story. God fulfilled this promise to Abraham. He brought him in the land. He settled them. And now what they need to do is kind of a little bit of a mop-up operation and get fully settled. He brought them into the land. I said that wrong. He brought them into the land. But now they are called to settle in the land. And so now we're expecting, great, here we go. Uh, let's watch God's people live out his law on display. So the world says, who is your God? We want to know him. That's what we're ready for. We're, we're, that's what the story has told us. So we come to uh, chapter one, and now I want to talk about kind of why the book of Judges, you know, talk a little bit about what the purpose of Judges is. And we'll get that by going through chapter one. I'm not going to read every single verse. It's a lot of places and a lot of names but I'll read quite a bit of it, and then we'll wrap up with what we see in the first verses of chapter 2. So look at verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. We start here. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first against, uh, for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their land. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated uh, uh, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Okay, so the book starts off, they've, in the land, Joshua, their leader's dead. So now the tribes are going to kind of get fully settled, take care of the Canaanites that remain. Because the danger of the Canaanites, their vile worship, God knows that if you're among them, you will start serving some of their gods. And so he wants them, he wants them out. 
So first thing that happens is really good. Verse one, uh, they inquire of the Lord, who should go up? What should we do here? There's not a lot of inquiring of the Lord in the book, but this is really good. They inquire of the Lord. And then the second thing we see is very good is God says Judah should go. And Judah says, I'm taking my brother. So there's unity. Judah and Simeon are going to go together. So there's 12 tribes. Three of them are southern, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. And then there's nine tribes in the north. So we read about these three tribes in the south, Simeon and Judah, go together. This is teamwork. What we find is when God's people go it alone, destruction comes. But when they're in unity together, God does great things through them. So they go up, first of all, they win a battle at Bezek. And we get, man, this book's got all kinds of interesting things. We find out about Adonai Bezek. That means the Lord of Bezek. He is the king of Bezek. They find the guy, and what do they do? They mutilate him. They cut his toes off, his big toes. They cut off his thumbs. Why do they do that? Well, they do that uh, probably to demonstrate their victory, but also so that he would never be able to fight again. Without big toes, you have trouble walking and balancing, and without thumbs, you can't really hold and use a spear, a sword, or certainly not a bow. So they cripple him so that he will not be able to ever battle again. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, people argue, commentators argue about this. Is this a bad sign? Was this the first sign that Israel was starting to become like Canaan? Because what happens, they go into the land of Canaan, and the whole book is a slow burn of how they get Canaanized, how they become like uh, Canaan, how they become worldly, we could say. That's what the whole book is kind of following. So some people say this is the first side that they were of Canaan. They were to get rid of the guy, not mutilate him. So are they becoming like Canaan? Because what does he say? Oh, yeah, I've done this to 70 people. I've got 70 kings with no big toes and no thumbs, and they're eating scraps off my table. And he says, God's judged me in doing the same to me. Maybe we just get the detail because we see this is the judgment of God. And even this, even this pagan guy saw it was fair. I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of people today really, really struggle with the, uh, you know, the conquest of the Canaanites, but this guy didn't really struggle. He's a Canaanite, and he goes, hey, this is fair. I deserved it. So it could just be a statement about fair judgment. It could be, why? Why are they doing that? God didn't tell you to maim people. That wasn't the command. Why did they do that? We don't know. Next, we get a, a section that is about uh, a marriage, and we see in verse 11, there went against the inhabitants. Uh, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. I want to comment on this. It's interesting that this is in here because one of the themes that we see in, uh, well, it's not a theme, but a repeated concern that we see in the book of Judges is the people have drifted so far away from God that one of the things they do is that they really degrade at various times. They degrade women. They also, they also promote women in some sections as well, but they certainly degrade them. So some people read this and say, wow, this is really a degrading uh, of a woman very early in the story. We're not even to the bad part. These are the good part. We're at the, right now at the good parts of the story. It's about to get bad. And, and this probably isn't what we think it is. I mean, by our sensitivities, 
by our modern cultural sensitivities, a dude that says, if you do so-and-so, you win my daughter's hand in marriage, uh, that sounds bad because it sounds like he's making her a trophy, an object, a trophy that you can win. But that's probably not what's going on here. Caleb was a good guy. He was a partner with uh, Joshua. And what he's probably saying here is that, look, I want a faithful man of God, somebody who trusts God for my, wa- for my daughter. And so what he says is, who believes the promises of God? God says we get the Canaanites. God says we can, uh, he will be with us to capture this land. That is the command of God. Who believes the command of God so much they'll put their life on the line? Are you going to trust God and risk it and go into battle? If you are and you take the whole city, you're worthy of my daughter. Probably he's saying, I want someone who believes in God's covenant, who trusts God, and will risk his life for God. That's the kind of man that's worthy to marry my daughter. Because as we're going to go on, we're going to see a lot of people didn't trust God that way. So anyway, he does. His name's Othniel, and he's the first judge we'll read about in two weeks. So we have this section. And then the first time we really get a concern unless you're concerned about the marriage, unless you're concerned about cutting off people's toes. Uh, Except for that, this is all the good part, except for that, we get our first whiff of concern in verse 19. So as we go down there, keep winning battles, keep winning battles, they're, they're settling in the land. Verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. We're going to see in a minute, God's going to rebuke them for this. This wasn't, wow, we're outgunned. They've got better weapons than us. This is not that they can't, but that they won't. This is God delivered them from Pharaoh and drowned the Egyptian army. Do you think a few iron chariots is too much for this God? So Judah stopped short of doing what God called him to do. Uh, Then look down at verse 21. By the time we get to the third tribe, Benjamin, it's not going well. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem until this day. Whoa, they didn't drive them out at all. They're still living with the Canaanites. They didn't do what God promised that he would do for them. They didn't respond. Verse 22, now we start getting to the northern tribes. There's nine of them. And we find out it it doesn't go well. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages or Tanak and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages on and on. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So listen to this, the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. God said, free the land of these people as a judgment Get their idols, get their false gods out of here because they, uh, they're uh, reprehensible. They're doing deplorable things, ki- killing children, and they will affect you. So get them out of here. But, oh, Ephraim, well, he didn't get them out. He let them stay. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them. So they go in, they get the land, but you know what? We're going to let them stay too. You can tell it's just going down. Well, it's going to go down more. Look at verse 31, Asher. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of of Sidon or of Ahab or of Oxib or of Helbah or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites 
lived among the Canaanites. So before it's like, Zebulun, we're going to let the Canaanites stay. By the time we get to Asher, it's like, we're going to live on their turf. Look at uh, verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemus or the inhabitants of Bethanah. So they lived among the Canaanites. Hey, we can't take them over. We'll just live among them. They dominate. This is God's land, but they dominate and we'll just go along with it. And by the time we get to the last tribe, Dan, well, it's really bad. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. God said, I'm going to give you the land. God promises to free them. And they say, you know, they won't even let us down here, so we're going to live up in the hills. And then verse 36, and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim and from Selah and upward. So then we don't even get, this is God's land. He's given Dan a section of it. We don't even get that. We've got Dan's up in the hills. This is where the Canaanites, uh, this, is, this is their border. This is the border of the Amorites. Okay, thanks for your patience. I know these are foreign names, foreign places. It's a foreign world. But there's a big idea here, and there's a flow as you see it. Judah, inquire of the Lord. Go with my brother. Take all these lands. Do great stuff. Oh, but there's this one people we didn't get. And then we get down to Benjamin. Oh, he, his tribe couldn't run everybody out. And then we get to a couple of tribes who say, well, we got most people out, but we're going to let some of them stay with us. Then you get to Asher and Naphtali. Well, we couldn't really get anybody out, so we'll just stay with them. And then you get to the Dan, we're headed for the hills. You see the trajectory. It's showing increasing compromise amongst people, God's people. And it's hard for us to understand, well, what's the big compromise? The big compromise, compromise is that God came to Abram and said, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to be the light of the world, and I'm going to do it all for you if you'll just be faithful to me. Now I've given, raised up Joshua. I've cleared out the land for you. I've put you in here. Now finish up the work, faithful to me. And they stop. They stop. They don't complete the work of God. They compromise. They give in. And the next passage really shows us that's what's going on. It's not just we're outnumbered. It's that they've compromised. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We'll wrap up here. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall uh, break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum. That means tears or weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. But what happened? What, why did they not fully drive out the Canaanites and their idols? Why didn't they do it? Well, here's the reason. They forgot God. They forgot the gospel. What's the first thing he says to them? He says to them, I brought you up from Egypt. He's going back in the story. Made a promise to Abraham, and then when you were enslaved, I freed you. I did what was impossible. Nobody could believe that you as slaves could be freed from Pharaoh, but I did that for you, and I made a covenant. I promised I would never let you down, but I would stay faithful to you. And I told you, get rid of all of their altars. Get rid of uh, the inhabitants of the land, but you did not do it. They forgot the power of God. 
So they, they forgot what he did for e- when they were in Egypt, and now they're afraid of someone with an iron chariot. They were not faithful to the God who said, I am always faithful to you. So they weep. They offer sacrifice. This is a skin-deep, a surfacey repentance, because we'll find out very quickly uh, they're, they're not doing well. They don't follow the Lord. So what do we get out of this? A bunch of names, you know, uh, what do we get out of this? Well, here's the first thing that little moral compromises lead to big breakdowns. They have a great God with a great plan. They're in a great story where their whole purpose is to live for God, to flourish and to represent him to the world. And he's fulfilled every promise from Abraham, every one of them, a nation, a land, a place to worship and represent God. He has blessed them. God has been faithful, but they've made little compromises, haven't they? And the story is going to show as we go further that, that the small compromises are going to lead to apostasy, uh, uh, turning away from God, worshiping idols. That's where this is all headed. Now, I'm sure that before chapter 2, these people of Israel felt like we're doing pretty good. I mean, outwardly, we're pretty successful. All the Canaanites aren't gone. Okay, fair enough. All the idols aren't gone. Okay. And Dan, uh, that, that, that was a bad situation. But most of us are doing pretty well. We're successful. I mean, they could sit here and go, our grandparents were slaves in Egypt. We've got our own land, and we're free to worship the Lord. We're pretty successful. We've taken out a lot of people. We really have got our own spot. They could feel pretty good about themselves, but the reality is that outward success is not true success. True success is obedience to God. True success is pleasing God. True success is remembering what God has done for us and responding to him with the joyful offering of our life in faith and trust and obedience. It's faith to try hard things, to step out and do what he's called us to do with courage. That's what it really is. But if you see this, you see that they have compromised. They have not done that. Now, Othniel, the guy uh, who Caleb says, you know, you can marry my, wa- my daughter if you, uh, if you do this. That guy what, did have some courage. We saw that, but they, they didn't follow through. See, what happens is they are allowing things and people in the land that God said, remove it. They're allowing the evil Canaanites, they're allowing their worship and their idols, and God said, remove it. And that's compromise. It's when we allow something in our lives, something in the church, something in our family, certain, certain and, and primarily let's focus here, something in my own heart that God says, remove it. That's compromise. And that kind of compromise leads to great breakdowns down the road. You know, I want to ask you today, as you think about your own life, where are you in danger? Where are you compromised where are you in danger of compromise? What little thing that you go, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, it's just a few Canaanites over there. Yeah, there's an altar, but mostly it's good. What, where in your life is there compromise? Could it be in an area of money, sex, anger? Yeah, I get angry about this one thing, but fear, pride, What are you allowing in your life that needs to go, that God is more powerful than? Judges teaches us that external success doesn't mean we're pleasing God. Success is looking to God, trusting in what he has done for us in the gospel, in their case, deliverance from Egypt, in our case, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and trusting that he will give us power to do what he's called us to do. 
little compromise. We're going to see a lot of little compromises that lead to people being far from God. Secondly, and, and I'll wrap up here, I think this calls us, the whole book does, but this section in particular, don't forget the gospel. What is the first thing the angel of the Lord says to them in chapter 2? He doesn't say, guys, what were the rules? You're breaking all the rules here. He does say that. But he doesn't start, you're breaking the rules. What does he start with? He starts with grace. Don't you remember God freed you when you were a slave in Egypt? And when we sin, God says the same thing to us. Don't you remember that Jesus Christ took your sin, died on the cross, paid for your sin, substituting himself, and was raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin, to give you a new life that you might live with a new identity and a new purpose, to live your life for me and my glory and to represent me to those around you. God says to us the same thing he said to him. He starts with grace. Remember what I've done for you. Their, their compromises of forgetting the Lord, it's ultimately going to lead to idolatry. We're going to see they're going to they're turn to idolatry. You know what they're going to do? Instead of looking to God, they're going to look to the gods of Canaan, and they're going to ask those gods to give them children and give them crops. That's what they're going to do. But it starts really small, very small, with a great nation, I mean, a great tribe of Judah just not getting those iron chariots out of the land. They're going to look to ultimately look to false gods, and we can do that too. We are subject to the temptations of idolatry as well. They're not the gods of Baal. They're not the kind of gods. They're not a statue or something like that that these people bowed down to, but they are very similar things. You know, we can look to money or pleasure or success or the success of our children or something like this. We can look to these things to give our lives meaning. God determined that the meaning of their life was determined by their relationship, their covenant with God, what God had done for them, God's purpose for this nation, God's plan to reach the world with his power and glory and the message of who he is. That was their identity. That was their purpose. And they're not fulfilling it. They're looking to something else. They're putting trust somewhere else. We can look to a job or a bank account or to our health or to something else uh, to give us security. What, what makes me feel safe? I mean, they're looking around and go, well, we feel like it's relatively safe. The Canaanites are over there. We're over here. So we feel safe. But, but their, their security is a false security. Their security is in honoring the Lord who has delivered them and who's faithful to them. The God who is, is good. But we can look somewhere else. And when we look to idols, they always do the same thing. What does he tell them? Their gods, verse 4, their gods shall be a snare for you. Because you didn't get these idols, because you didn't get their altars, because you didn't get their religion out, you're going to compromise and it's going to be a trap. Idols are always a trap. If we put our security in our finances, it's a trap. It's a trap. We will ultimately, that will become our God and will trap us. It will own us. Either we won't have enough, our God won't bless us, and we'll be worried and fearful and panicking, or we will have enough and we'll trust in that and forget about our need for God. But either way, it's bad. Idols are always a snare, always a trap. 
Rather, we are to remember what God has done, remember our identity, remember our calling and purpose, remember his power. They should have been thinking, we are free because of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We're his people. We are forgiven. We have hope. We have a calling, all of us, to work together to glorify God. And we can say the same thing because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We have a father who has made us part of his family. We have a calling to live a life unto him and to represent him to the world around us. We remember his work. We remember his purpose for us. And this is to be our, our life. This is to be, we're to live in this kind of freedom. Obedience flows from remembering what he's done remembering how he's empowered us by his spirit, remembering his word to guide us and strengthen us, remembering his people that we partner together with to live out our calling corporately together and to do so with faith and courage no matter what resistance we face. That's the purpose of our lives. But they want to squander that. They're going to go for idols. Throughout Judges, we are reminded time and time again, we need a savior. We need a savior. They were looking for a savior. There's no king. I hope a good king comes and sorts this all out. We have a savior, Jesus Christ. He is a good king. We live under his rule and reign. We're part of his kingdom, and he's returning where he will make all things new. All chaos will be done away with, and peace and flourishing will be our reality forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. And in the meantime, we are to look to him, to run to him, to trust him, to rely upon him for power in our daily living. Because he's done something much greater for us than free us from Egypt. He's freed us from sin, death, the devil, and he has given us new life and new hope in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.